0: and the doctrinal truths that we're going to talk about on the next 5 Wednesday nights are scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and the glory of God alone. And that's a pretty good summary of what the reformers were trying to teach and emphasize in uh, in the Protestant Reformation. So we're going to spend a week on each of those ideas. But tonight we're talking about one last spiritual discipline, and it may be something that you don't think of as a spiritual discipline. But it really is, and it really is important. Uh, We're going to talk about church and how church is one of the spiritual disciplines. In fact, it's really, if you think about it, a spiritual discipline that brings all of the others together. And so we could end this study, and we could just tack on a bunch of other disciplines. We could talk about worship and fellowship and serving and uh, stewardship and missions and evangelism. We could tack on all these things at the end. And we could just sort of say these are other spiritual disciplines, and sometimes you'll read a book about spiritual disciplines, and they'll list those out in separate chapters. But really, all of those things we're going to talk about tonight fall under the heading of church. And so my fear is that, especially in the Bible Belt, people are really confused about church. And I think part of the problem is just the the low grade, watered down cultural Christianity that we experience here. And I think part of the problem is things that they actually hear when they do go to churches. And so to start off tonight, I'm going to put up a series of cliches up on the screen. These are things that you may have heard about church, these are things that you may have said about church. These are things that your friends may have said about church. And I just want you to get your mind thinking about how all of these cliches I'm about to put up maybe they contain a nugget of truth, but they're not truthful enough to be helpful at all. And so let's just walk through a few of these. Number one, we will never change the world by going to church. We will only change the world by being the church. You never change the world by going. Only change it by being. I can imagine somebody saying that who is frustrated. Maybe they find themselves in a dead church. Maybe the church doesn't want to reach out. They're not interested in missions. They're not interested in reaching their community. They just are sort of a dying group that wants to continue to huddle together at a particular address. And somebody sort of standing up in the midst of that saying, just coming here isn't going to change anything. We have to be the church. And I I guess I understand the idea there. But I also think that one of the key ways that God changes us and prepares us to change the world is at church. When we come and we fellowship and we sit under preaching and we study the word and we engage in worship and refocus our minds. And so I'm afraid that when you hear that, it sort of minimizes the importance of going to church. And I don't think that's a a great thing to do. So here's another quote, you may have heard something like this, or a cliche like this, church doesn't start until the service is over. I just think that's dumb. I'll be honest with you. I just think it's silly, and again, I think I can understand maybe a situation in which somebody would say that, Uh, and I, I guess I can sort of understand the point that someone may be making, but I think when you read that, church doesn't start until the service is over, and the world hears that. What they hear is, what we do here doesn't matter. really is irrelevant. I don't even know why we're meeting together. What's the point? Why would anyone ever want to come to church who's not currently coming to church if this is our attitude? That it doesn't even start until we leave. I think there's got to be some excitement about what does happen when we go to church. Here's another one. Same idea, said differently. What if we focused on going to Jesus instead of going to church? I actually saw someone on my Facebook feed post this a couple of weeks ago as I was preparing this this lesson. I think we would all agree that it's possible to go to church and miss Jesus, right? I mean, you can go to a church service and walk away without experiencing Jesus in any way. But I think when somebody reads that who's not connected to a church, they hear you say, What if we focused on going to Jesus instead of going to church? It almost makes it sound like church gets in the way of us coming to Jesus, which I totally disagree with. And I think the New Testament totally disagrees with. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit inspired verses that say things like, Christ is the head and the church is the body. I don't want to decapitate the body. I don't want to separate the head from the body and pretend like you can have one without the other. They go together. And so again, I don't know how helpful this is. One last one, maybe you've heard something like this, church is who we are, it's not where we go. I agree with that. The church is not a building, it is a people. It is a redeemed people who gather together to worship, to fellowship, to engage in mission, to do all of these things. But when you just say it this way, and that's all you're throwing out for folks is it's it's, it's not about where we go. I just think people hear that and they say, well, it sounds like going to church is optional. sounds like I can be a follower of Jesus and church not be part of my life. And you know as well as I do, people have a million excuses why they don't want to go to church. If you talk to folks who are unchurched and you just ask them, why don't you go? Why aren't you interested? You may get some of these answers. These are ones that I've heard. When I go, they just ask for money. It's boring. It's irrelevant. Whatever they're talking about doesn't have anything to do with my daily life. I don't see the connection. Going just makes me feel guilty. I just have other plans. Sometimes it's not that they are anti-church. They just have church so low on their priority list that other things take precedence. Um, Past experiences in church, for some people, that's their excuse. Well, I used to go and I got burned. Or I used to go and I, there was a big blow up and I haven't been since then. Uh, some people would say I haven't, uh, I'm not going because I'm not invited. Some people say I'm not going because I know they're going to judge me, which is kind of a judgmental thing if you think about it, right? To say before you even go that they're going to be hypocritical, you know, judging me. Well, you don't even know that. It's just an excuse. The hypocrite thing comes up. I'll be be—I'll be honest with you. I think in the Bible Belt, one of the reasons a lot of people don't go is that we in the church have said things like the cliches I put up at the beginning. And a couple of generations of people have grown up hearing that kind of stuff. And I think the desire in those cliches was to try to get people's attention and say, hey, just coming here isn't enough. You've got to connect. You've got to... Engage at a heart level, and I understand the motivation. But I think one of the consequences is a whole generation of people have grown up in the Bible Belt who say, Today, it's not that I'm you know don't like Jesus, it's just I'm not all that interested in going, and I can follow Jesus without going, it's not that important. Um, I think it's similar for Baptist churches, a lot of Baptist churches, on the issue of baptism. Sometimes as Baptists, when we talk about baptism, we're so afraid that someone's going to think we're Catholic that we just say, okay, the water's not magic. Nothing's happening here. This doesn't save you. It's really not even that important. I don't even really know why we do it. But we're supposed to do it, so we're going to do it. And we explain it away to try to demystify it and take the, the mystery out of it. And people end up listening to that saying, well, what does it matter? I don't even see the importance of it. And I think we've done the same thing with church. So take those cliches I put up on the screen and contrast them with these ideas. This is St. Augustine. He who does not have the church as his mother does not have God as his father. Augustine is recognized by Catholics and Protestants as one of the most brilliant church fathers, one of the greatest theologians, one of the greatest thinkers in the history of the church, and in his mind it was just not even conceivable that a person would claim that God was their father and not want to be connected to the church just it's those it's, those two things don 't even go together and today, if you say that to people today, they look at you like you 're from the moon. What do you mean i don 't have to go to church to be a Christian and Augustine would just slap somebody. I mean, he would drive him crazy. What are you talking about? How can you have God as your father without the the church as your mother? He thought those things went together. Martin Luther, since we're getting close to the Reformation, said this, at home in my own house there's no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. And what he's talking about is spiritual disciplines. And he's saying, look, this is the the man who sparked the Protestant Reformation. And he says, when I go home and I read my Bible, it's just, it's, sometimes it's cold. And it's like I don't even understand. And maybe I pray and it feels like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. And I just feel like I can't get any traction. But when I go to church and I'm there with the people of God. And it's not just me talking to God, but it's the entire body of Christ lifting their voice in worship. And it's brothers and sisters sitting under the authority of God's word. That's when my heart is stirred. He thought it was important. One last quote. This is from Don Whitney since we've talked about him several, several weeks now. The current interest in spirituality and the spiritual disciplines too often manifests itself in a privatized Christianity. Spirituality is seldom considered in the context of the church body, but the personal spiritual disciplines are not intended to make us spiritually, self-absorbed, evangelical monks. The church is the community in which Christians are to live and experience much of their Christianity. Sometimes when we talk about the spiritual disciplines to little kiddos or to teenagers or to adults... We sort of give them the impression like church is good, but you need to go and you've got to feed yourself. And it's got to be about you and Jesus on a personal, intimate level. All those things are good. But sometimes we give the impression like it's just you and Jesus. And it's not you and the church with Jesus. We just have this individualized mentality. And as Protestants, we would look at monks people who separate themselves from the world, people who go to live in a monastery, people who spend 15 hours a day praying. And we would say, like, you've totally disconnected from real life. Your spirituality may look impressive to some, but there's no connection to other people or to the church or to real life. And sometimes, even as evangelicals, as Protestants, we make the same mistake. We assume the place where I'm going to really grow is simply only in my personal private devotions. You can see how this can be like a death spiral because if you're like Martin Luther, if you put all your stock in personal private devotions and then you go have your devotion and it's miserable, you think, eh, this isn't working. And Luther would come along and Whitney would come along and Augustine would come along and say, you need the church alongside the spiritual disciplines. In fact, I think they all agree Church is itself a spiritual discipline, and so that's what we're going to try to talk about tonight. What is the spiritual discipline of the church? Let's just mention a few things that fall under this category. Number one, worship is the act of ascribing worth to God for who He is and what He's done. This is the primary purpose of the church. So worship for God's people is when we ascribe worth to God for who He is and what He's done. And let's look at Hebrews chapter 12 for just one picture of that. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 22. Author of Hebrews says, You have come to Mount Zion. "...to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly." That word assembly is literally the word church. In fact, some of your Bibles have footnotes. And if you look at the footnote, it says possibly down there like it does in mine in the ESV version that assembly is the same word we would translate church. So you could say we've come to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all into the spirits of the righteous made perfect, into Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In all of those things, the author of Hebrews is describing our worship to God. Now you know, and I know, that worship is not contained, it's not exhausted in what we do in this room, right? Worship is certainly not something that happens in this room, inside these walls, when certain people are on the platform and you're in these seats, and then when we leave this place, it stops. However, as the people of God, while we agree there's nothing magical about this room, when we gather together, and this happens to be the room in which we gather together, there is something special happening. There is something important happening. We are an assembly or a church or a gathered people that come together to think about the work of the Spirit in our lives and the work of Christ on the cross and the work of the Father in our lives and our salvation. And we gather together for this purpose of worship. And I'll be honest with you. When you look at churches across Odessa, Texas, and you say, How can all of these people claim to follow the same book and all of their churches look so completely different? How do you have churches that you, you could go for a decade and you would never hear a bit of gospel, but they would talk about doing lots of nice things for the community? How, how's that possible? And it's because they've forgotten that worship is the primary function of the church. And they've replaced that. Well, we, we need to be good in our community. We need to serve people in our community. And that's become the driving force for everything that they do. You have a whole other group of churches in this town that you could go to, and they would be hip, and they would be cool, and they would be relevant, and they would be trying to connect and thinking they're connecting with all of these different people, but you're not going to hear a whole lot of gospel. You're going to hear a lot of sort of life tips and life suggestions, but you're not going to hear a whole lot of gospel. Why? It's because those churches have decided that missions, evangelism, outreach is the primary function of the church. And if reaching out to people is the primary function, well, then you're going to drop anything that might be offensive. You're going to drop anything that might be a barrier. You're going to drop anything that might be controversial. And you're going to just try to boil it down to the lowest common denominator that won't make anyone uncomfortable. You're going to reach people, but what are you reaching them with? You have churches in this town who would be very traditional, and uh, going into them would be like, walking back in time 30 40 50 60 years nothing would have changed maybe they would even still have the little plaque on the front of the sanctuary wall with the hymn numbers on it and the attendance from the last week and the offering and you can sort of picture a scene like that and in those churches the primary thing has just been to preserve the status quo that's become the most important thing certain a certain style has become the primary function of that church And one of the things that we've got to remember is that worship is the primary function of the church. It's at the center of who we are as the people of God. Next, moving on from worship. Fellowship describes the togetherness of God's people. The togetherness of God's people. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, let's start reading in verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together... And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see a similar passage just a few pages over in Acts chapter 4. So when we talk about fellowship, we're talking about the basic idea of God's people just being together. Now you know the first thing that comes into our minds when we hear the word fellowship as Baptist is probably the fellowship hall. Like a room in the church, a place where we go together and you're supposed to bring a casserole and everybody sits around and we eat too much food and then we talk about, you know, silly Baptist jokes. Oh, Baptists eat too much with casseroles. And that's our sort of our idea of fellowship. And that's just kind of silly, right? Like if that's your idea of fellowship, like play dates and potlucks, you just sort of, that's the extent of it, you miss it. And uh, I know we talk about uh, Tolkien way too much, but think about about the Lord of the Rings and think about what Tolkien named the first book in his trilogy. He named it The Fellowship of the Ring. It's not because these guys had potlucks together. It's not because they got together and had play dates and just kind of hung out and played fantasy football together or sewed together or whatever. It's because they were together, bound together by an oath in a mission that was going to last until they died or they accomplished the mission. And he picks, to describe that group of guys, Tolkien picks the word fellowship. And that's a picture of what church ought to be like, what fellowship ought to be like. I don't know that you can sort of put your finger on it and say it looks exactly like this or this is when you do it or this is how you do it. But it's just the biblical idea that we're in this together as a church. Like we're together. We're soldiers together. We're side by side together. We're fighting together. This is a life or death mission. And we're in it together until God takes us home or we finish the mission. And nothing's going to stop us from accomplishing it. That's the the idea of fellowship. And uh, I think if you look around society, I think it's pretty obvious that human beings are hardwired. For fellowship, and I 'll just give you a couple of examples of this. Sports shows how easy it is for us to be bound together and to feel sort of an identity together. So whoever your favorite team is, when you see them in the World Series or the Super Bowl or whatever, you go around to all your buddies, and you don't talk about them, you talk about us. We're Ooh. in the World Series. Well, you're not in anything. You're in a cubicle, or you're in the oil field, or you're in a classroom. You're, you're not in anything. They're in it. But that's what we say. And, you know, I'm a Jayhawk fan, and um, there's not a whole bunch of Jayhawk fans in Texas. And when I see one, when I see somebody wearing a Jayhawk shirt or they have a Jayhawk bumper sticker, I just feel like we're soulmates or something, like we're close, like, Hey, those are my people. I don't know those people. I probably wouldn't like those people. They probably wouldn't like me. I don't know. But you just feel a connection there. Other examples of this would be the military. When men come home from serving in the military, they will say to you, Those people that I served with are my family. They're my brothers. They don't just talk about their buddies, they talk about those guys like we were in it together. To the death, we had each other's backs and nothing was going to separate us. That's the the idea of fellowship. You see it in politics, where it's just based on shared ideology. People will come together and rally together and complete strangers will stand at a political rally and wave silly flags and hold up silly signs and yell and scream at the top of their lungs and clap and all that sort of stuff. They don't know the people standing next to them. But there's an idea that brings them together, and in those moments, they feel like we're in this together. You see the same thing in uh, in music, in music festivals or concerts. Um, I remember when I was young, my dad used to always take me to any classic rock concert that came through Amarillo. We went to all of them. And so we'd go to these concerts, and you've got a bunch of rough, you know, gruff old men and they don't, you know, they just look like a bunch of tough dudes and you get them in the same room together and you put the band up there. And then just like clockwork, they're all singing in unison, the exact same songs and their hands are in the air and they're excited. And there's just a sense of like that brings people together and you feel a connection with the folks who are there. I think we're hardwired for it and I think the church is designed to fill that need that we're hardwired Uh, to experience this idea that we are together in a life-and-death mission, and we're in it to the death. If God takes us home, great, but if not, we're going to keep plugging away together until the mission's done. That's fellowship. Stewardship. We're not going to say a lot about this, but stewardship is giving back to God a portion of what he's given to us to support the ongoing ministry of the church. Since we had a whole night about giving as a spiritual discipline, we're just going to sort of pass over it tonight tonight. And uh, I just wanted to include it because we talked about the centrality of the church and giving so- should certainly take place at the church level uh, for you, for you and, and the church that you support. And um, I think one of the most interesting things to me on this note before we move on, um, there's a lot of church health, church growth Uh, Researchers that I follow online follow their blogs and things that they research and look into. One of the interesting things to me is that for many of you, your church experience growing up, you would say a regular church attender is someone who attended church three out of four Sundays. That was kind of the old metric, looking at the people in your church and you say, well, do they really come or do they not really come? And the old number was, well, if they're here three out of four, they're regular. They're consistent. And today, that number has dropped, in best case scenario, to two out of four. If you can get them two out of four, then they're now considered regular. And one of the interesting things that churches all across the United States have experienced in that shift is that many people give only when they go. And the mindset is entirely consumeristic. Like when they go, they'll give, but if they're not going, they don't give. They're only paying for services, you understand. I'm paying for the day, paid my dues because I showed up today. Forgetting the entire idea of fellowship that says, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're in this together, whether you make an appearance on Sunday morning or not, or you're sick or you're on vacation or whatever, we are in this thing together And the ministry of the church keeps on running, whether you show up three out of four, or two out of four, or one out of four. And so, giving is us giving back a portion to God of what He's given to us to support the ongoing ministry of the church. And we'll talk more about that uh, in a couple of minutes. What about service? Serving is the act of using your spiritual gift for the good of the church. That last part is really important. Using your spiritual gift. For the good of the Church. And let's look at Romans twelve and First Corinthians twelve. Romans twelve, let's read four to eight. Scripture says, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And the idea here isn't so much to like pick one out of the list and say, well, I'm going to do that one but not the rest of them. But the point is to say, as God has given you grace and ability in these areas, do it. And make a contribution because we are united in the body of Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, just a few pages over. The whole chapter is about spiritual gifts. There's just one verse I want you to see. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. God gave you a spiritual gift, gifts abilities, talents, inclinations for the common good of your church, not just so you could take care of your family, not just so you could take care of you know, your buddies, but so that you could build up the body of Christ. When you think about spiritual gifts and this idea of serving and actively being a part of your church family. There's two things you need to keep in mind. One, God is the one, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, God is the one who gives grace to different people. He gives these gifts. So for you to keep it to yourself is to take something that he gave you and to hoard it. Secondly, he gave you the gift for the common good, for the good of your church. So for you to keep it to yourself is not only in a sense sort of hoarding what God gave you, but is really in effect stealing from your church. Now, none of you, you're the Wednesday night elite. You guys are the cream of the crop. There is not a person in the room who I would ever expect to find you out in the lobby, picking the lock on the offering box so you could steal what was in there. None of you would do that. If you do, Leon's going to drop you like a bag of sand, man. He's going to take you out. The finance team is ready for that. You would never steal from the church. If, a, if we're passing offering plates, you would never think, I'm going to sneak a 20. No one's going to see. You wouldn't do it. But the way that the New Testament describes spiritual gifts, it's clear that God gave you these things not for you, but for the good of your church, the common good. And if you don't use them for the common good, you are in effect stealing from your church. Is that exactly the same as pilfering out of the offering box? Of course it's not. But it is stealing. At a fundamental level. So serving is part of of this spiritual discipline of church. How do we practice the spiritual discipline of church? Really, really simple. You go, you give, and you serve. You go, you give, you serve. Hebrews 10 talks about not forsaking meeting together, as some are in the habit to do, uh, of doing. But encouraging each other as the day draws near, so you're going and you're there. You're giving. We read that in Acts 2. We read it in Acts 4. You see it in uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, this idea of giving to support the ministry of your church. And you serve. And let's look at 1 Peter 4. I don't want to leave 1 Peter 4 out before we finish tonight. So go way to the back of the New Testament and look at 1 Peter chapter 4 1 Peter 4 verse 10 Scripture says as each has received a gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace God gives the grace God gives the gifts he varies that between person to person everybody's different in that sense Be a good steward of what God has given you. How do you do that? Verse 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Why do we do that? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. So that's how you practice it. Really simple. Why should you practice it? Just a few thoughts. Why should you practice the spiritual discipline of church? Number one, the church is the one organization that Jesus left behind and promised to build. So you remember Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, who does everyone say that I am? Well, you're Jeremiah, you're John the Baptist, you're one of the prophets. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Jesus says, God has revealed this to you, you're blessed because God has shown this to you, Simon. And he goes on after he rebukes Simon and he says... I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the one and only organization that Jesus promised to leave behind and to build. It seems awfully strange to me to think that someone who claimed to follow Jesus would not want to be part of the one organization, institution, assembly, group of people that he left behind. That's what he promised to build. If you're following Jesus, it seems like being a part of the church would be important to you. Secondly, the Holy Spirit dwells within the church. Within the church. And I know we talk about the Holy Spirit dwelling within us as Christians individually, but the emphasis in the New Testament really isn't on the Holy Spirit lives in you, singular. The emphasis in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit lives in y'all, plural in the church. And so let's look at just a couple of examples of this. 1 Corinthians 3. In some translations, this is hard to see. In uh, older translations, it's actually a little bit easier to see. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Do you not know that you, you... And my Bible has a footnote there. You go down to the footnote and it says the Greek for you is plural in verse 16 and 17. So the you here is not a singular you, it's a y'all, as we would say. You, you guys, you plural. You are God's temple, and God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And he's not talking to individual Christians, he's talking to the church. As a whole. Flip over a few pages and look at Second Corinthians six. You see the exact same idea. Second Corinthians six, verse 16 says, "What agreement has the temple of God with the idols? We are the temple of the living God. Not just me, but we. us together, we are the temple of the living God." You see the same thing in Ephesians 2. Again, if the Spirit is going to dwell in the church, in the people, the assembly, it seems that someone following Jesus, claiming to have the Spirit, would want to be part of the people, the assembly, the group that the Spirit is dwelling with. Third, we're called to love each other. Whether you like it or not, we are called to love each other. These are some great verses um, We won't read 1 Corinthians 13. You know that that's the quote-unquote love chapter, and you know you've heard it at weddings, and you've seen it on anniversary cards and sort of romantic things. But in the context of 1 Corinthians 13, if you look at what he's talking about in chapter 12, and then what he talks about after that, he's talking about the church. He's not really making a point about how husbands and wives should love each other. He's talking about how we should love each other. Love is patient, it is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. It hopes all things, believes all things. All the things that Paul says about love in that chapter, yes, there's application to marriage, but the primary point that he's making has to do with church. Look at Galatians 5. We'll look at these last two verses. Galatians 5, verse 22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is, first one on the list, love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. If the Spirit is truly present and at work in your life, love is going to be one of the fruits that we see on display when you think about you and your relationship to your church family. Look at First John all the way almost to the very, very back. 1 John chapter 3, if you're a black and white kind of person, you like 1 John, he just kind of lays it out and says this is the way it is. 1 John 3, we'll just start in verse 11 and we'll go for a little while. This is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. That's a test. If you want to know, have I passed from death to life? Do I truly believe in Jesus? Am I saved? Am I born again? Is my my destiny changed from hell to heaven? Where do I stand with God? Here's a test. You know that you passed out of death to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So the, the stuff about Cain we just read, you might have checked off and said, okay, check, don't murder my brother. But then John comes around and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you hate your brother, you're a murderer. And no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brother's. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And he goes on and he just talks about the same ideas over and over and over again. We're called to love each other. Next, fourth. There are 59 one another verses in the New Testament. And I have not listed them all for you. We're not going to read them. You can look them up. You can Google one another verses and find lists online pretty easily. But there's a whole string of commands throughout the New, the, the New Testament that say, do this for one another. Do it to one another. And they're all things, just to be really direct, they're things that you cannot obey sitting at home watching a TV preacher. Not possible. You can learn from a TV preacher, but you can't do the one another's with a guy on the television. That takes coming here with other people and being an active, real, significant part of a church family to do all of these one-anothers. Last idea, and you're going to love this. What a great way to end a Bible study. Church lasts forever. And as you fill it in, you can think about the sandlot and the the kids saying Forever. Forever. Church lasts forever. Nothing thrills your heart more than that, I know. And uh, before you get too panicky, flip over to Revelation. And let's just look at Revelation 7. Sometimes we have a picture of heaven in our minds. That heaven is like a never-ending choir practice or choir rehearsal or Christmas cantata or something where you just, you're there and you sing and you sing and you sing and it never ends and you're supposed to be happy about that. That doesn't sound very fun to me. I can do a little bit of that, but at some point I'm going to need to do something else and you are too. The Bible describes amazing things that we will be doing in the new heavens and the new earth. okay But the Bible also describes eternity in the book of Revelation in terms of God's people still being together. So if your idea of heaven is I get to get away from people and be by myself in a cabin out in the woods, eh, wrong. We're going to be together, so you might as well get used to us. We're going to be together, and we're still going to worship together. We're still going to gather together in heaven as an assembly, as a church. The book of Hebrews where we started in chapter 12 describes this assembly of the firstborn where there's angels and there's people and they're gathered together and they're worshiping and praising God And you catch a glimpse of that in Revelation 7, 9 to 10. Uh, And we'll go all the way just down to verse 12 maybe. But it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the land, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's not the only thing that we're going to do in heaven, but it certainly is one of the things that we're going to do in heaven. And you see that throughout the book of Revelation in this picture of the end and this picture of eternity when the veil is pulled back. You see this revealing is that God's people are still together in their worshiping. So let me just end with this thought. We've spent eight weeks talking about spiritual disciplines. And most of the things that we've talked about are things that you do as an individual. And I told you right out of the gate that the most important, the primary and the foundational spiritual discipline is Bible intake, is Bible reading. And I stand by that 100%. I end with an emphasis on the church saying, If you do all the spiritual disciplines but you miss the discipline of the church, you missed it entirely. And I just want you to, it's just kind of common sense. There have been millions upon millions upon millions of people who have lived on this earth and have never owned a copy of the Bible that they could read all by themselves. Or they didn't even know how to read. And many of these people throughout history have got their Bible intake and been taught how to pray and experienced all of these spiritual disciplines primarily in the context of church, gathered together. You think about all those saints who have lived throughout the years, who haven't had a copy of the Scriptures, who haven't been able to read a copy of the Scriptures, they're in no way, shape, or form second-class Christians because they never worked their way all the way through a one-year Bible and checked off January 1st to December 31st at the end. It in no way makes them second-class. It just means that the disciplines took a little bit of a different form. So as we think about the disciplines, you're blessed to live at a time and a place where you can engage in most of these disciplines all by yourself. You can go home and read your Bible. You can go home and you, you can pray, and you can have your own little prayer journal, and you can write things down, and giving, and all the things we've talked about. Fasting, you can practice all of these things alone. But if you miss the idea that we're really, at the end of the day, in it together, then the spiritual disciplines just kind of turn you into what Don Whitney calls a, uh, an evangelical monk living in your own little silo, pretending like it's just you and God and no other people. And if you walk away from a study on the spiritual disciplines thinking that's where it's at, without an idea that the church is a key and a critical part of spiritual disciplines, then I think you've missed something. And so I hope you'll take the individual disciplines we've talked about and then sort of filter them through the importance and the centrality of the church.